Good morning, church. So, Monty, in first service, I'll say again, I just, I'm grateful for how the body of Christ comes together in, in interesting ways. Uh, that, that song was written by a, a good friend of mine. Um, as you might know, Nashville has a few mu- musicians in it, and uh, We the Kingdom is actually there, and, and Ed is a friend of mine. And so, to be able to sing a song that he wrote um, together with our new church just makes me feel uh, wonderful. I love the giftedness of the kingdom of God. I also, you know, I'll have these moments all the time. I just, I love being back in Texas. I love Texas. It, it was, it was so funny. I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone. I'm walking out in the hallway earlier the week and I saw the, um, the silent auction table. So you picture this, it's like only in Texas, like this beautiful, gorgeous, like jewelry box. The, uh, you know, the last suppers on the top of it right here. Then over here is like these beautiful Russian dolls. And then right in the middle is a compound crossbow child starter kit. I'm like, I love Texas. It's just, <laughs> it's just perfect. It's just perfect. Oh, it's so good to be with you. My name's Dean Barham. And if you're just joining us, welcome, welcome. Uh, we're, we're trying to have this, this little series as we kind of lean into the beginning of the year. Really uh, think about our mission statement uh, to help people find hope and, and live with purpose. And we're l- really looking at that second part of it. What does it look like to live out the purpose that, that we have on the planet here? And we want to learn for the best. Jesus lived his life from beginning to end with purpose, and he trained for that. And so that's what we're doing in this CrossFit series, looking at how Jesus trained into a life of impact. We've seen how he, he dives in and interacts with people and develops community around him. We've seen how he pulls back and connects with God in solitude and prayer and silence. We've seen how Jesus saturates himself with the story of God and scripture and, and we'll continue on today. So if you have your Bibles or your devices that you read on, we're going to begin by reading the text we'll look at today. It's in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1, Luke 7. This is the gospel of our Lord. When Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. And there a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to ask him, to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he's built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
We all know, don't we, that some of the most memorable moments in life can happen on road trips, right? Could be road trips with your family, could be vacation time, could be a lot of what we were talking about here today, could be mission trips, short or long-term mission trips that we go on. I think about that, by the way, the, the people of God have a long history of going on the road, of getting outside their spiritual community and going out in service and mission. Again, surrounded today is surrounded with conversation about that, prayer, read, and others that we're blessing going to different places. Uh, so I suspect you won't be surprised to hear us say that that's part of the training of Jesus. You won't be surprised that Going on road trips, going on mission trips, getting out is part of the training program. But you might be surprised when we look closely at the life of Jesus, why we do it. Maybe different than we think. I think about one of the first mission trips essentially I ever took. I didn't grow up in a church like this where it was part of the DNA of us doing that. Didn't have the resources, didn't have the vision that this place has. Oh, we would go out, we would invite people to church, we might knock on doors or do those kind of things, nothing wrong with that. But the idea of gathering in a group and going somewhere, being sent somewhere to people we don't know, just no strings attached, to bless them in the name of Jesus wasn't part of our rhythm. So I remember my freshman year at Virginia Tech, we went on my first mission trip. What had happened is there was a hurricane that had hit the Carolina coast. So in Virginia, we went down and a bunch of college students, we piled in the cars and we went down to help clean up in the wreckage of the aftermath of the hurricane. And there were kind of deep and moving moments. Then there were sometimes these awkwardly humorous moments as well. I remember the first day we were there. Remember, we just kind of walked through the wreckage of all this stuff there on the Carolina coastland. And we gathered at night to do just a little devotional time. We're just going to get together and sing. And, and Brian, it's old school days, man, where you stapled the songbooks together, right? And so we passed them out, and people could choose a song and sing, and they could pick a couple songs. We could pick a couple songs. And we're just getting started. One of our students started singing a song in the, in the old book. It, it was one of those that's along the theme that we know better from the, uh, you know, the build your house on the rock, you know, the... Wise Mountain built his house on the right, right? It's the same kind of theme. And this, this song is called Don't Build Your House on the Sandy Land. I don't know if you've heard this. It was, I haven't sung it in years. I won't sing it. Don't worry. You don't want to hear me sing. But this is how it goes. So picture we're in the room and we sing. Don't build your house on the sandy land. Don't build your house on the shore. It might be kind of nice, but you'll have to build it twice. You'll have to build your house once more. Here's a little word of the wise, Brian. Hayden, when you're taking folks on mission trips, if you're going to a coastland place in the aftermath of a hurricane, not a great song to start with. <laughs> Wasn't uplifting as we had intended. They were patient with us. They were gracious with us. They were, they were funny moments, but they were powerful moments too. I remember the faces, still remember the faces of people were standing on what's left of their roof looking at what's left of the memories of their lives. And you could see it on their face. Oh, in just one week, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to fix anything. But just the presence there did give them a sense of hope. There was just a sense of hope. You're not in this alone. You know, we're going to go through this together. It was powerful. And I remember thinking, for me, it was like one of the first times in my life that I actually felt like a Christian. 
I mean, I'd studied, I'd gone to church, I'd done all this stuff, but I kind of like felt like a follower of Jesus in a moment like that. So it's, again, it's not surprising that when we're looking at the training program of Jesus, what did he do to live the life that he lived? One of the things that you find is Jesus is always on the road. He's always going himself, and then he's taking his disciples on these road trips, these short mission trips, where he's going out in service to the community. It won't surprise us to hear that, but when we look closely at Jesus, what may surprise us is why he does it. All right, we're going to get into Luke 7 in a moment, but I want to start with just one glimpse of another road trip of Jesus. And the thing I want to encourage you to do, we're, we're just glance at, at Matthew chapter 9. Watch for the effect that Jesus has on the people around him. Just notice this. What, what effect does Jesus have on the people around when he's on the road? Matthew 9, 31 through 33, and then we'll come back to Luke 7. It says, the disciples went out. Watch the sending language. Disciples went out and spread the news about Jesus all over the region. And while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and who could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. Now watch the effect on people. What does it say? The crowd was amazed and said nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Do you see the crowd? When Jesus shows up on the road, the crowd and the people are amazed. They're astounded. Can you almost picture, just imagine in your mind's eye when Jesus is out there and he's engaging on his mission trip. Can you see their wide eyes? Can you see their jaws drop? The crowds and the people were amazed when Jesus went on the road. It's a powerful word, by the way, in that culture. The word, scholars will tell us, means to be astonished. It's astonishment with admiration. It's something that kind of blows you away and yet draws you into it at the same time. Others will say it's almost a sense of awe, even fear, at something unusual and mysterious. That's the effect Jesus had when he showed up. On the road, people were amazed. I want you to keep that in mind as we come now to our main story back in Luke chapter 7. And we come to this different little mini mission trip, Jesus out on the road in a place called Capernaum. And when he goes there, what I want to encourage you to do is notice who gets it and who doesn't. Notice in the story here that we just read, notice who gets it and who doesn't. There's a way to think about it. In this section, we see Jesus going out on the road, but it's coming on the heels of what he had just spoken and preached. Often, whenever you're reading something, especially in the Gospels, look at what happens right before and what happens after, and it'll also often enrich what you're reading right there. What happens right before this is the thing that we know better from Matthew as the Sermon on the Mount. So one of Jesus' signature sermons, which he surely preached in different varieties and all sorts of different places, in Matthew, he's preaching on a mountaintop, and it comes out a particular way. In Luke, he's preaching on a plane, not the thing that flies through the air, but the things out here, it's flat, and he's preaching the sermon on the plane, they call it, in Luke. But both of them have similar themes, and I want you to think about what is it that Jesus wants people to get? There's at least two things that come out of that message. First of all, Jesus preaches in chapter 6 that God is literally turning the world upside down. 
He's turning the culture and the value system upside down. He's playing by a whole different set of rules. And so you'll hear things like, blessed are those who are poor and hungry and mourning. Like, get excited and fired up when you're, when you're desperate. I love the way the message puts it. When you're at the end of your rope, blessed are you. And you see him turn the world upside down just a little bit. Luke's message. In Luke's message, Jesus preaches what are known as the messianic woes. He says, woe to you if you're not desperate. You have everything you need already right now. Money and resources and all that. You feel this? So in his signature sermon, he's turning the world. God is turning the world upside down. The other thing that comes out is God is expanding the boundaries of what we mean by love. He's just stretching. Who gets compassion and kindness and love from God? We've heard it so often it perhaps doesn't shock us like it did back then. This is what Jesus says in the sermon in Luke 6. Love, love your enemies. Don't just love those who deserve it. Elsewhere he'll say, don't just do what the pagans do and and honor those who honor you and love those who love you and be kind to those who've earned it in your life. He says you expand the boundaries of the love of God even to those who don't deserve it, to your enemies. Not just to people who haven't done kind things for you. People are trying to take you out. Now, that's the message that comes before. Here's a, here's a way to think about it. You know, in, in college, if you're taking science, high school, you're taking science, you're going to have two parts of it. You're going to have the lecture, and you're also going to have the what? You're going to have the lab. So you, here's a way to think about it. In chapter 6, you get the lecture. In chapter 7, you get the lab. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm going to paint a picture of what it looks like in the kingdom of God. But here, in, uh, that, that's the word, that's the lecture, that's kind of the academic meat for it. But then in chapter 7, I'm going to bring it into the laboratory and you're going to see what I mean in real life. Now again, here's the question. Who gets it? And who doesn't? Here's what's staggering. The ones who don't get it in the story are the insiders, the religious people, the church folks, the church leaders. It says the elders of the Jews came to Jesus when this centurion, this pagan, this outsider has a servant that he wants healed, and the Jewish leaders... The people of faith come to Jesus and say, Jesus, this man deserves to have you do this. You ever done that to God? Oh, deserved it. He deserves to have you come and do this. Why? Because he's loved our nation and he built our synagogue. By the way, what they just did right there is they spoke on the regular non-upside-down value system of the world. Back in their day, it was called patronage. And here's the way it worked. If you had money and you had power, you would become the benefactor of clients who then in exchange for that would give you loyalty when you wanted it or you needed it. Get that? That's the world system. That's the political game of their day. If you bless somebody, you do something, you spend money on them, you do something great, you build their synagogue, then you deserve in exchange for that to get something in return when you needed it. And the Amazing thing is it's the religious people that are coming to Jesus playing the political power game. It's almost as if people today would say the, the best way to change the country and change the world is, is to play politics and power games in the culture. And that's how we get God back. 
The religious leaders are the ones that don't get it. Who's the one who gets it? Staggering to me. It's the dude out playing golf on Sunday morning. <laughs> you remember we used to drive with the kids? It was so funny. We weren't trying to be rude. It was funny. We're driving to church and there, there are folks out playing golf and our kids would say, go to church. <laughs> Not with the windows open, okay? <laughs> and I would think, okay, honest moment. Look, if we were more what we were called to be, people, people would come. I don't blame them sometimes because we don't always let God show off in the power of the setting. But just think about that. It's the, it's the folks on the golf course on Sunday morning. They're the ones who get it in the story. It's the centurion. It's the pagan military commander who gets this. You can see it a couple different ways. How did he get the lecture of what Jesus said? My favorite line in this story, he says, he had a servant, a slave who was sick. And that slave, he valued highly. The Greek is even more powerful. It says, the word entimos, it says that he was priceless to him. He was precious to him. He was incredibly, highly, hear this, valued by the Roman centurion. What does a Roman centurion do every day of his life? He's a guy whose job it is to be like the guy looking at the chessboard. And here are the, the people, here are the pieces that I have, and I'm going to arrange them on the chessboard in the way that we can maximize the biggest impact for the Roman Empire. So literally his job is to look at people and say, valuable, not valuable, important, not important. In his culture and day, how valuable would a slave servant of the centurion be? He would be worthless. He's a pawn. Except for this guy. The Roman centurion gets Jesus' lecture even before the church folks do. He valued his slave as if he were priceless. He's the one who gets it. Even deeper than that, he gets power. He understands power. They're manipulating politics with the Jewish leaders. He gets power. He says, stop, Jesus. He sends, don't, don't even look at my face. Don't even come to my house. Why? What's he essentially saying? He's like, look, I've seen human power before. I know how human power works. He's saying to Jesus, look, I get it. I know, I, I've seen bravado and muscle and might get my way. I can command people to go here and do that. But he said, I see something in you I could never have. And that is somebody who actually changes lives. I could get somebody to go and climb a hill or, you know, take a sword out and maybe even put their life on the line. But I can't heal a guy that I care about. And I can't save another life. I see a power in you. I see nowhere else. He said, Jesus, you just say it and it'll be done. Notice who gets it. <laughs> And who doesn't? It's not the church guy. It's the outsider. Which for me leads us to the greatest twist in this story. If you're following the greatest twist in the story. Remember what we saw before. What is the impact in people's lives when Jesus is out on the road? In this story, I ask you this question. Who is it that is amazed this time? Who's the one that's astounded in awe? Did you catch it in verse 19 and 20? It says, when Jesus heard this guy say this, hear me, Jesus was amazed. Jesus was the one 
who was astounded. Listen to this. He said, I haven't seen radical trust like this in God in the entire church. And I see it in a pagan centurion. And Jesus' eyes get wide. Jesus' jaw drops. The staggering power of where God happens to show up in this place. It's one of the reasons I love leaning into the humanity of Jesus in this series because so often it's easy for us to just think he's, he's, he's Gandalf and Lord of the Rings, man. He's not surprised by anything. He knows what's coming next. No, he emptied himself of that. He is fully God, yes, but he's also fully human. So even Jesus is amazed where God chooses to show up. He's blown away. By the way, this is a theme throughout Jesus' ministry. It's an important theme to Luke in his writings, and it's an important theme throughout the Bible. Here it is. Sometimes the most amazing thing you see God doing is in the folks on the outside of the faith community, not the ones inside. It's throughout the Bible, I'm just telling you. Sometimes the most staggering, jaw-dropping things God will ever do is not in the church building or in the temple or in the faith community. It's on the outside. Let's just think about how Luke wants us to see it several times in his writings. When Jesus gives his mission statement sermon in the book of Luke, the first sermon that's recorded is in Luke 4. How does he end the sermon? What is his great conclusion to get people to come forward? They don't come forward. They want to shove Jesus off a cliff. Why? Because he said, you know what? In all of the church, I'm just translating Israel for our setting. In all of the church, in all of Israel, there were all sorts of people that needed healing. And none of them got healed in this era in Elijah's ministry except for, you ready for this? Does this sound familiar? A pagan commander named Naaman who God uses as an example of crazy obedience because he's willing to be baptized essentially in a water that doesn't make any sense but he could have been baptized or washed somewhere else but he obeys God and he's healed. Jesus says nobody in the church was healed but this pagan commander was. Does that sound familiar? Here's another beautiful thing. You want a great study to do sometime? Very intense. You know there's Luke volume 1 and Luke volume 2. You know that. We call it Acts but it's 2. And Luke is very intentionally, he'll tell you the story of Jesus and his earthly ministry, then he will tell you, kind of a paraphrase of his language, the ongoing story of Jesus in the body of Christ after that in the thing called the church. Now here's a great study for you. Sometime look at pivotal moments in the life of Jesus in the book of Luke, and you will see a mirror moment of that in the book of Acts. It happens throughout the book of Acts. You know, we'll talk about them in several other places. But here's a good example of this. Centurion here is the place where Jesus has a staggering, amazing God show up moment Entire world changed when Peter climbed up on a roof to pray, but he had no idea what was going on until God set a vision, not in the church. You know who got the vision first for what God was going to do in the entire world? You know who got the vision first? A centurion named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Peter's up praying. He doesn't even understand what's going on until there was a knock at the door from servants representing the centurion showing up at his house saying, hey, come and hang out with us. Peter said, I've never done that before. Never been in a Gentile's house before. And on the way, he catches up on the vision of God that was already in the heart and mind of the outsider. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes the most staggering things God ever does 
is first in the outsider, and then God gets the faith community to get in on it as we go forward. Absolutely breathtaking. Why is this important? I believe it helps us see an entirely different motivation for why we go on mission trips. Why do we go on road trips? Why do we go to the Ukraine? Why are we having the auction? Why are we having the lunch? Why are we doing these kind of things? Why are we praying over Reed? Here's what I've heard my whole life. We're going to these places because, man, they need Jesus and they need what we have to give. And there's some truth to that, right? And we serve for the same reason the centurion wanted his servant healed because people are valuable no matter where they are. But I've got to say this with all the energy I've got. We don't go on mission trips because they need us. We go on mission trips because we need them. We get outside of our comfort zones in our comfortable places and our understandings of God because God is already doing something in the places we go to serve and the person that may need to be converted first is us. We go there because we need them. Because God is doing something in them, sharing something with them. That we wouldn't see otherwise. I can't tell you how many times, especially as a college minister, I had people come up and say, why in the world are you driving halfway across the country to go serve needy people? we got needy people right here. I said, I understand that, but that's not why we're going. It's not just going to serve needy people. It's because Jesus taught us a long time ago, it's not about evangelism first. The road trip is about discipleship. The road trip is about disciple making. Here's the truth. We all know it. You've been on mission trips before. You can fake it and look pretty for an hour on Sunday, but try doing it for a week together. Right? When your hair's all matted and your breath smells and you're fighting on the trip about who, you know, what's the temperature of the air conditioning and all that. You know it. And in moments like that, you've actually got to practice what it looks like to have the love and the patience and the character of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit in everyday life. It's for us. Jesus kept people taking people on the road. Why? Because he wanted the fabric of the gospel of Christ to come out in everyday life when it's hard. And because the people and places we encounter when God takes us on the road... God is opening our eyes to things we would not see otherwise. If we don't get outside of ourselves, we will forget who we are. You've seen it before in churches that get really insular and really isolated and really inward focused. If we do not get outside of ourselves, we will forget who we are. I went to a conference one time and I heard the speaker talking about how in the early 1900s, Russia got taken over by the secular communists, and we still feel it today, do we not? And when they took over that country, their number one obstacle to their worldview, their secular atheistic worldview that they wanted to saturate the society with, their number one obstacle was the church of Jesus Christ, the glorious, beautiful Russian Orthodox church. So you might think, how, how are we going to take these folks out? How are we going to undermine the the, the church's influence. You, if you're like me, I might think about, well, we just outlaw the church. No, they were devious and brilliant in the way they did it. Instead of outlawing the church, they didn't do that. They said, you can sing, you can pray, you can read your Bible all you want, 
They didn't forbid them from like worshiping or whatever. You know what they forbid them from doing? Going outside of the church and living out their faith in any meaningful way. Can't feed the hungry. Can't clothe the homeless. Can't take care of anybody in need. You just do your little church stuff inside the building and you don't go anywhere. And within 70 years, those churches became impotent and weak, irrelevant and ineffective in their communities. And they won. If we don't get outside of ourselves and our comfort zones and our environments and our groups, we will forget who we are. So my encouragement is to keep your eyes on Jesus and the story. Just picture him. Can you see it? His eyes wide, his jaws dropping, because even the Son of God and his humanity is amazed at where God chooses to show up. And I think Jesus practices in his earthly ministry being amazed so that we might practice the same thing. We might look to be shocked and astounded and amazed at the kinds of people and places we might actually see God. Jesus models for it, us, that for us first so that we might do it for other people. I remember some years ago now... A mission trip we went on, again with students, and we went to an inner city church, just inner city church. It was kind of just getting off the ground at the time, just working with the homeless and a lot of hard lives and situations that were going on there. And we did all sorts of things in the week that we were there. But the, the thing I remember most is Cecil. This isn't a picture of Cecil. He probably wouldn't let me take a picture of him, but he, man, he looks like him. Had that beard take take a long time to grow. He looked this way and we would spend a lot of time almost every day having lunch together. The place where we, we had our mattresses and sleeping bags, we slept in a warehouse that was connected to, to the church. And we actually were able to get up and every day we had showers and we had hot showers and hot water. And the reason we had those is because Cecil built the showers. He wasn't a member of the church. I mean, he was there all the time. He wasn't a member of the church, but he built the showers that we enjoyed that week. And, and, and this simple, incredible life, God used him to teach me all sorts of things. I remember a conversation over lunch one time where he taught me a different way to see the world. He was talking. We were sitting down and looked just like this. We had food in front of us sitting down on the ground. And, and he said, you know, if you had one dollar to your name and your friend came up and asked for that dollar, what would you do? And I said, I, I'll be honest, I'd hold on to it as tightly as I can. I only got one dollar, I need it. Go ask somebody that has more. He said, that's not the law of the street. He said, on the street, if your friend comes up, you got a dollar, he didn't have a dollar, he asked you for one, you just give it to him. Why? Because on the street, the only, the only day that matters is today. And so if somebody, you got something they need, you just give it to them. Why, you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. A dollar's probably not going to help you out tomorrow anyway. Probably won't be enough for what you need. So you're going to have to learn to, to be dependent on people tomorrow. So you might as well just, just be generous today. Just give what you got. I thought, man, this just, it reminds me of, of a guy who, who told me a long time ago, don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough problems of its own. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? taught me a whole new way of thinking. 
I remember Cecil's generosity. I remember his laughter. I remember his kindness. But most of all, I remember his words. It was on Saturday. We're having lunch. I said, hey, you know, we're going to have, as you know, we're going to have church service in this old warehouse tomorrow. You're going to come. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, look at me. I don't belong there. This is an inner city church for homeless and outcasts and all that. He said, look at me. I don't belong. By the way, I don't think he was just talking about his homelessness. I think he's talking about the same thing that if we were honest about ourselves, we might say the same thing. We just dress it up a little better. Look at me. I don't belong here. I remember the next day sitting through the worship service, powerful worship service, and yet there was an ache in my heart because my new friend Cecil wasn't there. And I remember driving home, thinking then what I still know to be true today. I I don't know what we did. I don't know what I did when I went there, but I didn't show up on that trip for other people. I showed up there because I needed Cecil. And he shaped the vision of my life ever since. Because ever since then, I have longed to find a church where my friend Cecil would come in and sit down and feel like he belongs. I've been part of incredible churches, and I'm part of an incredible one right now. And I don't know where we are on that. And I'm not talking about the homeless thing necessarily. But I suspect pretty much all of our churches have a little ways to go before anybody with any kind of brokenness, can just come in and feel like they are welcome there. But I'm not not down about that. Here's the thing. I'm pretty encouraged because we are in training. Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is training us more and more every single day to be more the church of Jesus Christ that gets outside of ourselves. And when we do, we're transformed by the very people that we think we're there to serve. So look at Jesus. Just take him in. Look at his eyes. Watch his jaw drop. Because wherever he is leading us in the days ahead, we are going to be amazed at where we see God show up. Father God, that is our prayer. That you are the sending God, Jesus. You are the road trip sending Messiah. Part of a church with a long history of that. Father More and more, let that be our heart, not just to go out, but to go out with open eyes for how you are changing us and not just how we are serving others. Would you please help us to do that to the glory of your son, Jesus' name. Amen.